Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning or your digital device, would you follow me to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 27 through 31. So we'll finish up Romans chapter 3 today. And hey, the good news is, after today, we will be one-fifth of the way through the book of Romans, okay? So we still have a journey to go. But hopefully it's been a blessing to all of us. I know it's been a blessing to me to prepare and study and be challenged by the Lord and the messages that he's given us through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, hopefully you found Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this opportunity you've given us to be in your house, in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your people. We thank you, Lord, that you were faithful and obedient to go to a cross and to bear our shame and our guilt to take the sentence of guilt that was ours and take it upon yourself and to be crushed under the weight of the Father, of the wrath of the Father, the wrath that I deserve, the wrath that everyone in this room deserves. But you willingly suffered that wrath so that if we would but believe in you, we can be redeemed. Thank you, Father. I don't deserve it. But in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my debauchery, in spite of my depravity, you loved me so much to make a way that I can be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, as we engage your word this morning and we see these implications of what it means to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That these would, would challenge us as we live every day in our life. And we're asking you to, to give us ears to hear. Help us to be able to understand and comprehend your word. And as always, Lord, use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just to get our minds wrapped around where we are, and we have to look a little bit at where we have been. And I know you guys probably get tired of the redundancy of uh, reliving where we've already been, but it's important for us to know that Paul is making an argument that started in chapter 1 and that will end in chapter 16, right? And so we've got to keep Paul's 
flow of thought in our mind if we want to properly understand this argument that Paul is laying out. Uh, Too often we take one verse and we try to make a whole doctrine out of it and we need to be weary of folks when they do that, you know. Uh, Never read just one passage of Scripture because there's always a context that goes behind it. There's always a flow of thought. You know, we, we don't speak that way, right? We don't think that way in one, one word at a time. We think in chunks of thought, and we speak in chunks of thought. And that's what's happening in Paul's dialogue here. And he started out with us reminding us of this power of the gospel. In the very beginning, he's already front-loaded what he's explaining for us in verses 27 through 31 today. He's talked about this power of God. Why is it the power of God? He's outlined for that for us in the previous section that we were in last week. He demonstrated how God's power was manifest in the gospel through the person of Jesus Christ. And so this week, he is helping us understand what the implications are of this argument that he's been making, that faith is always through Christ alone not by the works of the law. So what does that mean for us in our life? And he's going to spend the next two chapters helping us understand what this means and what it looks like, this faith alone in Christ and how it impacts our life on a personal basis. So today when we unpack this passage, we're going to look really at three main headings. We're going to think about these three major implications that Paul makes in this text. And he does it by way of question and answer, as you heard when we read uh, this verse. There's usually a question, then Paul gives an answer, and then he gives an explanation about that answer in each one of these uh, sections that we're going to look at. And so the first heading is going to deal with the aspect that boasting has been excluded because of this faith in Christ alone that is apart from the works of the law this righteousness of God that's apart from the works of the law. And then secondly, we're going to see that Paul helps us understand that distinctions have been eliminated because of this righteousness of God that's been revealed in faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. And then finally, he's going to help us understand that the law is upheld. The law stands because of This righteousness of God that has been revealed in faith in Christ, which is apart from the works of the law. And so let's unpack this passage as we look at those three headings and see what Paul has to say about these implications. And so it's quite obvious in this text, if you look at it, we see the the outline of the text is laid out for us by the Apostle Paul. He gives us this first set of questions. We have two questions in this first Verse verse 27. The first question is, then what becomes of boasting? And we have to ask ourselves the, the question, why, why did Paul pose this question to uh, his audience today? What's the occasion for this question as it relates to boasting? Well, I think Paul has already given us hints about this occasion for this question early on in our uh, study. In chapter 2, as a matter of fact, in verse 17, look at what, how Paul describes this Jewish audience. You remember in chapter 2, Paul is dealing specifically with the guilt of the Jews because in chapter 1, he dealt with the Gentiles, those pagan Gentiles, and the Jews were on board with him in chapter 1, and he starts out chapter 2 by reminding them that, hey, Mr. Jew, you are without excuse 
Jews as well because you disobey the very law that you claim to be teaching to other people. And so look what he says in chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So what were they doing? The, 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 the part of this statement that is egregious to the Jew is that they were relying on the law. They were trying to make their, themselves righteous by being obedient to the law. The problem is that they couldn't be obedient to the law. Paul told them in another place, listen, you break the law in verse 23 in that same chapter, chapter 2. You who boast in the law dishonor God. Why? Because you break the law. The very things that you're trying to teach to people and lead people to be obedient in, you are breaking yourself. That's why he says, do you even teach yourself the law that you're teaching other people? The implication is they couldn't keep the law. There's no way they could live in light of 100% perfect obedience to the law. And they would never find righteousness in God because they would always break the law. And so too it is for you and for me. We can never measure up to God's standard of holiness. And so the Jew would ask, then where is my boasting then? If I'm a Jew, you remember they thought they had superiority. They thought that they were the cream of the crop. They were God's chosen people. God had given them the oracles, right? He'd given him his revelation. Where is boasting then? Paul says, it's out the window. You're not going to boast in yourself. You're not going to boast in your pedigree. You're not going to boast in your ability because none of that will make you right before holy and just God. So boasting is excluded. It's driven out is the idea behind this uh, Greek word that is used to translate that phrase. Then the second question is, well, by what kind of law? You see, their mind is still on the fact that we, we've got to have a law. We've got to have this, this, this set of standards that we must obey. By what kind of law then? By this law of works? And Paul's answer is no. By a law of Faith. Faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone is how we come to repentance, how we come to be redeemed and made right before a holy God. And Paul gives the explanation for his answer to these questions in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he already has made that claim in, in the previous section, right, in chapter 3. Every human being must come to God the same way as what we're going to see in this text today. By faith alone and Christ alone. It's by this law of faith that started way back in the Old Testament, as we'll see later on. And so I thought about these questions, these answers, and this explanation and you know, my second favorite preacher, Dr. Steve Lawson, whom I'll quote in just a moment, always says uh, that his, one of his preaching professors used to sit back in the back of the room whenever they were, uh, they were up there doing their sermons before him. And whenever they'd be preaching, at some point or another, he'd raise up a sign that said, so what? All right? So the idea is, is, what's the point? What does this mean for us? Right? And so I thought about some theological implications that come from these questions and this fact that there is faith alone in Christ alone. So the thing that I wrote down was there is, to use C.S. Lewis's language, 
There is no son or daughter of Adam, which is all of us, right? Apart from Christ, we're all sons and daughters of Adam. There's no son or daughter of Adam who can find right standing with God through good works. I don't care if you're Jew. I don't care if you're Gentile. I don't care who you are. As a son and daughter of Adam, we will never be made right with God, no matter how good we think we are. Because as Paul has made very plain in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, every one of us is totally and utterly depraved before God. We are guilty, and we can never do enough good The reality is we can never do good apart from God. So there's no hope for us. And the Bible makes that plain. Romans 3, 12. All have turned aside, which includes you and me. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's the thing that we don't grasp as human beings. Because we think that somehow, in some way, even without the redemptive work of Christ, that we can do good. Now, I think that we can appear to do good, but ultimately, the Bible's teaching is that apart from the regenerative work of Christ in our life, there is not one human being who can ever do what is good. Because there's only one who is good. Right? Jesus says that. And that one good is God. So we need help. We need something other than ourselves because we're not going to make it on our own. Romans 2.23, Paul, uh, or excuse me, uh, Romans 8, 7, and 8. We'll get there later. Uh, Romans 8, 7, and 8 drives this point home. Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And you and I need to understand that everyone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, everyone who has not been saved, everyone in the church culture, we would say that is lost, right? Their mind is set on the flesh. Right? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. You see the problem? Without the regenerative work of Christ in our life, our mind is not bent toward God's law. As a matter of fact, we don't like God's law. Therefore, we cannot accomplish the righteous requirements of the law. That's what Paul says in this passage. Listen, this mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. We are unable to submit to God's law until God regenerates us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So apart from the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus, we have no ability in ourselves to please God. That's not my words. That's Paul's words. So if you have an argument or you don't like that, then you need to take it up with Paul and you need to take it up with God because I didn't make that up. I'm just telling you what the book says. We need God to work on our behalf. Second uh, implication I saw theologically, or at least thought of, and this is not an all-inclusive list. 
Our salvation is the work of Christ on our behalf. Thus, our boasting is in Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 through 31. And because of him, meaning God the Father, you are in Christ. In Paul's, right? Uh, John chapter 6, uh, somewhere around verse 44. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And the one that the Father draws, the Lord says that I will raise them up in the last day. One of these days we'll go through the Gospel of John. But what Paul is just reiterating what Christ has told us in the, in the Gospel of John. That it's because of the Father that we have been drawn and we have been found in Christ Jesus. And look what he says. Christ became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those are the things that Christ has done for us because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because of the regenerative work that he's done through the person of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. He has become for us what we need to be made right before God. It is in Christ alone that we find our redemption, our sanctification, our righteousness, and even the wisdom of God. And he goes on, so that, it, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I have no reason to boast, right? Unless I want to boast in my sinfulness, unless I want to boast in my debauchery. If there's any boasting to be done because I am a child of God, it is all about who God is and nothing about who I am. Because God has done what is needed. Now to quote my second favorite preacher, Dr. Steve Lawson, here's what he says about this concept, this idea. It's kind of shocking at first when he says it. He says, we are in reality saved by works. But it's not our works. It is the works of another, namely those of Jesus Christ. It is by the perfect work of Jesus Christ that are imputed to us by faith alone in Christ alone that we are justified by God. So today, if you are here trying to find your righteousness in yourself, by your own power, by your own nature, by your church attendance, by your name being on a church roll, by some prayer that you have prayed, you need to understand there's nothing that you can do that will make you right before God. Salvation is because of God's grace alone, because of faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. If you are redeemed today, it's because God has saved you. And you must boast in God. All right, second implication. I feel like I'm putting you all to sleep. Second, second implication we see in our text today, verses 29 and 30. 
Distinctives are excluded. Look at what Paul says. Or is God the God of Jews only? That's the question. The follow-up question is really the answer to the first question. (laughs) Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And then Paul answers this question. Yes, he is the God of the Gentiles also. And so, again, I had to ask myself, what is the occasion for Paul asking this question and thus giving us the answer that he gives us? And he's been setting this up all along the way. He's been pointing to this from chapter 1, that there is only one God, and therefore there is only one means of being made right with that one God, and that one means is binding on all humanity, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, right? And, and so just, just you don't have time to turn there, but Romans chapter 1, verse 16, from the very thesis statement of this letter, he laid out for us this very point. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And here's the phrase that is pointing to what Paul's making, uh, to the point Paul's making in these questions in verse 29. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. From the very outset, he's, trying to, he's been trying to paint this picture that, listen, there's only one way to get to God for all of humanity. The distinctions have been broken down in Jesus Christ. And he goes on in in chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then he drives this point home. Why? For God shows no partiality. In other words, there is one God and there's one way to get to God. And if you come to God through that one way, Jesus Christ, you will have the benefits of redemption. And if you reject that one way, then you will suffer the consequences of your decision to reject the promise of God in Jesus Christ, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. What is Paul ultimately saying? There's one God, and everyone stands guilty before that one God, and everyone must find redemption the same way before that one God, and that is through the person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus reminds us of that, doesn't he? And again, in John's gospel, at least in John chapter 14, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, right, can be saved. That's my paraphrase. No one can be saved ultimately without me, is what he's saying. No one can come to God but by me. The world doesn't like to hear that, right? The world wants us to think that there are many ways to get to God. There are many avenues to be made right with God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Christianity says. The Bible says there's one exclusive way to be made right before one holy God, and that way is through repentance and faith in the person Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to get to God in any other way, you're not going to find God. It is only through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
So that's Paul's answer. And he gives us explanation for this answer. He says, God is one. And again, he hearkens back all the way to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 in particular. God is one who will justify the circumcised, that means Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentiles. And so don't let the, the prepositions bog you up because some people have pressed too hard on the, hey, there's two different prepositions in this passage. Well, Paul's just using a, a literary device not to say the same thing in a very slightly different way. The point of what he's making is hinges on this idea of faith. There's one God and the uncircumcised Gentile and the circumcised Jew must come to that one God the same way by faith, in particular by faith in the person, Jesus Christ. So what, what, is the, what are the theological implications of this passage to us today? One, we've got to start with where Paul starts with this one God. There's one true and living God as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 tells us. That is, that is the epitome of Jewish uh, theology, right? It's almost as if their profession of faith, if you will. Uh, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elo, e, Elohim, Yahweh, uh, Echad. Uh, the Lord our God is one God, right? That is what we believe as Christians, right? We believe that that one God has manifest himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but we are monotheistic to the core. There is only one God, and Paul is saying because there is only one God, there's only one way to get to that one God. He makes this very clear. It's been his concept from the very beginning. That's everything that God was doing in Israel was ultimately pointing us to the fact that there's going to be one redeemer for all of humanity. And that's really, I think, the, the second point is there's, there's only one God and one means of redemption. Salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is probably the quintessential text that proves that point. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not on your own doing or that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you and I are made right with God, it's because of God's grace through faith that God has granted to us so that we can be redeemed and made righteous before a holy God. I just want to walk you through a few texts that will nail home this point, that this has been God's plan from the very beginning, okay? What Paul is telling us is not a new concept. It's not something he pulled out of the air in the New Testament. Paul is merely telling us what God has been doing in redemptive history from the very beginning. And we, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We could go back to Genesis chapter 3, actually, but Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3 is dealing with Abraham. In chapter 4, Paul's going to use Abraham as an illustration for us to help us better understand this concept of this uh, righteousness by faith in Christ. He says, now the Lord, uh, Yahweh, says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And then here's the key in verse 3. In you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. God's intention 
was always to bring redemption to all of humanity. Jew and Gentile, not meaning every human being is going to be saved, but every type of human being, every ethnic group of humanity would ultimately be offered redemption in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's been God's plan from the very beginning. It's not new. And Paul's just reminding us of that. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verses 6 through 8. Uh, uh, using this concept of Abraham from the Old Testament. He says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, right? God was telling us and is telling us that through Abraham, it's always been about faith. It was because of Abraham's faith that he was accounted righteous, right? And so all of those who come to faith in Christ take part in the inheritance of righteousness that Abraham took part in. Verse 8, he goes on in in Galatians chapter 3. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. You see, Paul is just telling us what the Old Testament had already told us. He's just making it clear to us. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. One big story, right? You can't, uh, contrary to what some people want us to believe, you can't unhitch from the Old Testament. Because the, old, the, the New Testament is, found, is, is, is built upon the Old Testament, right? God's been doing the same thing from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 3, God has been unfolding for us what we're reading about in Romans chapter 3. It's all been about redemption and faith through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verses 14 and 16, For he himself is our peace, meaning Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in him one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, the killing of the hostility, by thereby killing the hostility. What's God saying? There's one people of God today. And it's made up of both Jew and Gentile who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's one body of Christ, one people of God scattered all over this world who come to him the same way. It doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter what your culture is. no matter what part of the planet you're on. All of those who come to faith in Christ are the people of God. And you and I need to understand that. You and I need to shout that from the rooftops, right? All of us are one in Christ. And that's part of what our purpose is here, right? I know y'all don't watch the video before the the service is up there every Sunday got announcements and all that kind of stuff on it but on that screen comes our motto that we have adopted right 
you and I need to understand that our purpose is to promote the gospel of Christ because it is the gospel that unites people. The gospel unites people with God and it is the gospel that unites people with one another, right? It breaks down the hostility. You know, we, we, we talk about, you know, racism and, and bigotry and all those kinds of things in our, in our nation today, right? But there was no greater bigotry than between the Jew and the Gentile. And in Christ Jesus, God is telling us that he has broken down that middle wall of separation. He has made one or two into one. That when we come to faith in Christ, we are one united body of people. And we as a church must proclaim the gospel that unites people to God and to each other. That's the foundation of what we want to build in this place, right? And so we've got to flesh that out in our everyday lives. We've got to flesh that out in this body of believers. That we're, we're discipling people to share the gospel. We're discipling people to build lasting relationships with other people based on the truth and the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're, we're all about. And that's why Paul can write in other places and say that, hey, you know, there, there's neither slave nor free. Well, what was he saying? That, did that mean that there was literally no slaves and no free people uh, in that day? Well, yeah, they were both, right? Can you imagine in the first century church? That's the picture. There would have been people who were masters, and there would have been people who were in servitude to those masters. Right? But when they come to faith in Christ, it was a unifying bond for them. Now, I'm not supporting the idea of slavery and say we ought to support the idea of slavery. The reality is that slavery was real in the first century. Slavery was real at a, part in, uh, at a day and time in our uh, culture, whether it was here in America or in England or wherever. And to be quite honest with you, slavery is still real today in many places around this world. You need to understand that. It doesn't condone it. But what it was saying is that in Christ, he breaks down those kinds of identities as a slave and master. He brings unity to people, right? And that's why the church could lead out in abolishing those kinds of things, right? Because in Christ, there is unity. In Christ, there is peace. And in Christ, there is hope. And it didn't matter what your status was socially, right? It doesn't matter. There were rich people, there were poor people. But they're one in Christ. Christ ought to be the unifying figure in our lives. And it's only through the gospel that we will find unity. And I'm here to tell you the spirit of this age is doing its dead level best to maintain division and tribalism in our society through things like CRT, right, critical race theory, and other aspects of tribalism. The world is bent on making us be 
divided. It is the church who must lead the way in bringing us to unity in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying condoning things that we want, we, 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 that are sin and allowing that to be uh, normal in our society or in our church. But what I am saying is through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see people who are redeemed by the work of God in their life that redeems them from lives of sin, redeems them from this tribalism and division and find unity and peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's the only hope for this world. It's not going to happen in Washington. It's not going to happen in Montgomery. It's going to happen when the church shares the gospel of Jesus Christ and one person at a time is redeemed by Jesus Christ and their lives will be radically changed and they'll find unity and peace. And we are to exhibit that kind of unity and peace as the body of Christ. And so that leads us to the last section, which is the law has been established. Now, that's one we don't want to hear, right? We think or we have the concept that, hey, because of this law of faith, when we just throw the baby out with the bathwater, we get rid of the old law. It has no place in our life today. It has no place in the New Testament church today. It has no impact on the life of the believer today, right? But if you believe that, then you disagree with Paul. And if you disagree with Paul, then you are wrong, okay? Because look what Paul says. He starts with this question, do we overthrow the law by this faith? And we've seen this word before, right? Meganoita, the strongest negation in the New Testament in the Greek. By no means, some translation may have, God forbid or may it never be. So what is Paul saying? Are we overthrowing this, this law, this decalogue, this moral code of God? Absolutely not. On the contrary, Paul says in his explanation to his answer, we are causing the law to stand. We're upholding the law. How in the world can Paul make that claim in light of the things that he has already said? Because the the, the occasion for this question comes from what Paul said just in the last section. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, right? In the sight of God. So then what use is the law? Why don't we just cast the law out? There's no boasting by the works of the law. But Paul says we uphold the law. So I had to think to myself, what, what does that mean? That we uphold the law of God by this law of faith. In other words, by faith alone in Christ alone. Apart from the works of the law, we are, we are redeemed and made righteous by God. How does that sit well with this idea of upholding the law of God? And what does it mean that we uphold the law of God? Well, the first thing I thought about was the, the law has always pointed to justification by faith in Christ Jesus. Right now in Romans 9, verses 30 and 32. And again, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Paul says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel who pursued a law that led to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. You see what Paul is saying? It's always been about faith. It's always been about trusting God at his promise. But they tried to do it by works, which was contrary. And then the last sentence or last phrase in in verse 32 in, in Romans 9 really seals the deal. What was their problem? They stumbled over the stumbling block. And if you read the rest of that text, ultimately the stumbling block was this fact that God was sending a Messiah and that Messiah, when he came, was going to fulfill the royal requirement or the righteous requirements of the law. And if they placed their faith in the promise of God, which was the Messiah who was revealed in the New Testament as Jesus Christ, then they too, like Abraham, would be saved by faith. The law is always pointing to faith in God's promise. And then the second thing I thought about is God in Christ satisfied the righteous requirements of the law so that those requirements could be fulfilled in every believer. In other words, when we come to faith in Christ for the first time in our life, we have in us the person of the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to live up to the righteous requirements of God's moral code in the Ten Commandments. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work, I can't do that. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit, now I have within me the ability to do that. Does that mean I always do it? Uh, No, it doesn't, right? We'll get to Romans chapter 7 as well. I don't always do it, but I do now have the ability to do that, not because of who I am, but because of who God is and because of his spirit that indwells me. Listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, where? In us. The righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us now because we have been redeemed by Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he goes on to say, who walk not, those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You remember that goes back to what we read earlier in Romans 8. Those who are walking by the flesh cannot please God. There is a distinction and there is no middle ground. You're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the spirit. You're either one or the other. You're either lost or you're either saved. There's no middle ground in the scripture. Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 10. Here's what Paul, here's how he fleshes out what he means by this law being fulfilled in us. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How about that? Right? We fulfill the law by loving one another. Didn't Jesus really summarize that for us? Didn't he? When they came to him and says, hey, you know, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? 
He said the first one is like like this. Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then he said the second one is this. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. On these two commandments, he says, hang all of the law and the prophets. What's the joining concept in both of those commandments? It's love. The first one is our love for God, right? That vertical relationship. And second is our love for one another. And the reality is that our love for one another will never be complete or right until our love for God is the way it ought to be. And our love for God can only be the way it ought to be when Christ redeems us, right? Because before that, we're in the flesh. And what did we read earlier in Romans chapter 8? We are hostile to God. So it takes God working on our behalf, redeeming us, regenerating us, so that we can love him rightly. And then when we begin to love God rightly, we'll begin to love one another rightly. Right? And in so doing, we fulfill the law of God. So don't tell me that the law in that sense is not important to we who are believers today. Because God still holds us to the holy standard. Well, that's why Peter can say, be holy as he is holy. Well, how do I know what holiness is? I know what holiness is because God gave it to me in the Ten Commandments. Right? So the law still has implication for our life today. And if we are not living in light of the law of God, then we are in a disobedience to God. It is our measure. It is our understanding of what his concept of holiness and righteous living is all about. So Matthew Henry, I will conclude with this. <clears throat> Matthew Henry put it this way in his commentary. The law is still of use to convince us of what is past and to direct us for the future. And that, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? The law reminds us of where we came from. We were sinners. We were lost. We were destitute. We needed help. And God has helped us in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't end the work of the law in our life. Now the law shows us what we ought to be and what we can be because of the redemption in Christ Jesus. That's why the text, can, the scriptures can tell us in another place to live worthy of the righteousness that God has bestowed upon us or imputed to us in Jesus Christ. So the ultimate question before you and me today is this. First, have you come to faith in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in something else? To make you right with God. There's no other way. Christ alone. If your faith is not in Christ alone. If it's in works or anything else. Then you are headed to hell. And you need to repent. And you need to trust in Christ alone. Secondly. If we are believers who have trusted in Christ alone. Then let us live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the regenerative work that God has done in our life. God intends for us to represent him in this world by being holy as he is holy. And hey, I raise my hand first. I need God to keep helping me, right? Because I'm not holy as he is holy all the time. Most of the time, I'm not holy like God is holy. 
He's still working on me like the song says. That's why repentance is so important in our lives. You know, Paul made the statement, and most people know it, in his ministry, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, right? You know when Paul said that? He didn't say that on the Damascus Road when God arrested him on the Damascus Road. It was probably 20 years down the road when Paul made that statement. What's the point? The more we as believers walk with God, the more acutely aware of our sinfulness we ought to become. And it ought to drive us to our knees every single day when God reveals to us an area of sinfulness in our life. We ought to be devastated and grieved when we fail him. And that ought to drive us to our knees to beg him to help us to be better and more like him every day. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be in your house.